what do you do when um, everything is crucifixion and there's seemingly no hope of resurrection. I, I have not grown up as a Christian like my wife, but I learned early in my Christian life to, to pray scripture back to God. And yet, when I left Somalia, we stayed, we stayed so long uh, that all the believers before were killed. And we stayed so long in, in Kenya that we uh, buried a son and we stayed so long in Kenya we didn't make it home and our boys didn't get to see their, their grandma buried. And, and I, I've got these verses in my head and there's some of the verses that I, I learned I think the first week that I was a believer and, and, and I remember just quoting Galatians 2.20 uh, as a brand new believer when I went to university but when, when I came out of that experience asking Jesus you know can, can, can you still do it can, can, can you still change work inside of the Roman empires and worse of, of this world or, or was that a one off you know do, do, do you still reign in power or, or are we, we just sort of singing to ourselves here and I remember that one of the first verses that I ever memorized was Galatians 2.20. And, and you, you should know if you are a believer that verse of, of how it goes, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But all I could hear myself saying is I am crucified with Christ. Uh, I, am, I am crucified with Christ. And, and it felt inside like I no, I no longer live. And there was no rest of the sentence. I couldn't finish the sentence. Because everything was crucifixion and, and everybody that I loved seemingly was dead or dying. And, 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 and then to wonder if, if Jesus is able to do uh, what he used to do, that then I'm, I'm crucified with Christ. Stop, period. I no longer live. Stop, period. And people say, why, why did you go to believers in persecution? Wherever, where, where, where else were we going to go? If, if we want to know how you live the resurrection, where there are ample examples of crucifixion, where do you go? Where do you go? You can't do that. You can't discover that in church on Sunday morning. That's not where the battle's taking place. Where, where, where is this that this can be uh, uh, proven to you? So under the guise of uh, developing discipleship materials, I, 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 I sort of s snuck out of Somalia and we do, detoured to rural Kentucky for a year and 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 found some healing for ourselves, and then we just said, okay, Jesus, let's find out if you still got what it, what it takes. And, and we, we start out in the Soviet Union where uh, they'd lived under 70 years of communist rule, and there, there was just, just uh, you know, uh, tractor trailers uh, filled with literature and evidence of persecution, but we wanted to look believers in the eye and, and, and hear uh, the stories from their lips and know uh, 
if what we had been reading is just, you know how people can take a story and embellish it, and, and you, you can't sell stories, even Christian stories, and, uh, unless they're made into something, you know, more than they are. And, 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 uh, and you know, you get so blooming tired. I mean, you, you, can, get a, uh, you can get addicted to the uh, adrenaline rush of being in danger, like it was in Somalia. But you'll soon discover that a adrenaline rush for being in danger is not the same as being filled with the Spirit of God. You better not get those confused. Otherwise, you're going to start taking on God-like qualities for yourself, and at the end of the day, you won't have to have somebody take your life. You'll take it yourself. And, and so, uh, I'm so tired of, of being followed. And I'm, I'm tired of knowing every hotel you go into, you're, you're, somebody's listening in it. And, and every time you leave a, a hotel room where foreigners have to stay, you come back and you can see that somebody's been moving your papers around and things just aren't where you are. And you're careful. You leave so you can tell. And... And, you know, I'm a redneck from Kentucky. I don't like somebody messing in my boxers when I'm not there. I don't like them messing in my boxers when I'm there, all right? And, and I got so tired of it. I, I, one night I just ripped off a piece of paper, and, and I may have said this to some of you, but uh, it's worth telling again. I, I wrote on that piece of paper, to whomever is searching my room, thank you for leaving my clothes neatly folded, you know? And, uh, and, and I threw that on my pajamas and... In that drawer, and I left, and I come back in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I've forgotten all this, and I've got all these things swirling in my head, and I open up that drawer to get my pajamas out, and somebody's written on that note, you're welcome. <laughs> Everybody likes to be commended for doing a good job, you know, even bad guys. And, and, and there's this, this old man named Walter Muscatovich. He wouldn't weigh 120 pounds wet, and... Uh, he was soon to go to be with the Lord. He was 80-some years of age, and he was being my interpreter uh, among the Russians. And, and after about a couple of days, he said, now I understand what you're looking for. You're not looking for. You're not looking for stories and to take photographs and to sell magazines and do the things that, that terrify us. You're looking for Jesus. I'm going to take you to the man that knows him. I'll pick you up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And he did took me five hours north of Moscow and I pulled in a frozen driveway 30 below zero outside and that's where I met uh, whom you would know in the insanity of God as Dimitri for the first time and Dimitri was broken pieces and he's twisted and he, he still has scars that are inflamed uh, from the 17 years that he had spent in prison and and I can go on and I could tell you for a couple hours of all the things that preceded him getting arrested and all the things that caused him. I mean, all, they, 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 they took him to pieces and, and they tortured him and they almost killed him for 17 years just because he was doing in his house what you're doing here tonight. And, and you know, you walked in here, you, you, you didn't have to think whether you're going to get drug out of here and taken to jail. You walked in here tonight and you're fully expecting to go home with the ones you came with. You're, you're not worried about somebody coming in here and taking your kids from you. 
You're not worried that, that because you're here tonight, that when you go to work tomorrow, your boss works, looks you in the face and said, you're done. No, no. The real world is somewhat foreign to you. The real world where today, uh, what a lot of the world is saying, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And, and, and so I, I, I sat down with Dimitri. And he said, come, come, Nick. I want you to sit in the chair. And he put the chair against the back. He's a, his house, you could put his house in here 10, 12 times probably. Little living room, little kitchen, bedroom for his three boys, the bedroom for him and his wife. I can't remember whether the toilet was outside or inside. And, you know, maybe that's because of growing up in Kentucky when I'm used to it being outside that I was traumatized and I just don't remember, okay? So, so he said, sit. I want you to sit here. And this is the spot I was standing proclaiming Christ and teaching the Bible when they drug me to prison, put me in jail for 17 years. And I said, Dimitri, I don't want to sit here. It didn't work out very good for you, so why would I want to sit here? And he said, sit down. And I so I sat down. I'm not going to mess with someone been in jail for 17 years. And he began to tell me. And basically, because they had killed in prison, compromised, the dozens and dozens of churches that were in his community, the nearest church that he has is now a three days walk. How often are you going to go to church? How often are you going to worship God if real church, as they believed, real church is this. Real church is bricks and mortars. Real church is ordination. Real church is literacy. Real church is choirs and, and all the things that we add to Christianity that, that makes it sweeter and, and sweeter. But now all that, that's gone. There, there is not a church in his community where, as like in Kentucky, we have one on every hill and in every holler. And it's so good to be back home where people know what a holler is. I just got back from Seattle and I used that word and they stared at me like I was speaking Russian or something like that. They need to get a life. And, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm listening uh, to this brother and, and, and how just because he was as a lay leader, no, just because he was a man of God, he's sharing uh, the gospel going through the Bible with first 25 people, and when it got to be 50 people in his home. Now, folks, he's going to talk to me for six hours. And somewhere around the second hour, he said, you know what, Nick? And he's just talking in a normal voice like you and I would talk about, you know, gas prices or, you know, there's some bad weather coming in tomorrow, something like that. He said, Nick, when it got to be 50 people worshiping here in this little living room dining area, he said, oh, you know, they... They, they uh, fired me from the factory where I worked in the communist factory, and they fired my wife uh, from teaching in the school, and they kicked all, all three of our kids out of school. You know, Nick, uh, little things like that. And I've got this real professional face that my wife told me to keep on, you know, that, you know, school teachers do this active listening thing, you know. I don't do that, but I'm pretending, and I'm thinking, my goodness, Little things like this. He thinks getting fired from his job and his wife getting fired from his job and his kids getting kicked out of, that's, that's, that's Christianity 101. That's the, that's the entrance into what he's going to pay in this story. This is the fifth person I've ever talked to in my life about living the resurrection in persecution. I'm brand new at this. 
I'm a kindergartner in this. And, and he's telling me what normal Christianity is like, and now I'm in danger. Because I listen to a man, it's like interviewing the Apostle Paul in prison in Philippi. And if his faith is normal Christianity, what's this? Do, do, do I even know Jesus? I've challenged Jesus, are you who you say you are? And is it, is, is it really true that for a crucifixion there is a everlasting eternal resurrection and Jesus is about to show up and it was the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced because if that's normal Christianity, do I even know who Jesus is? With my seminary degrees and my missionary experience, and as he told me about his sufferings, and he told me about his beatings, and as he just graphically took me through the years, blow by blow by blow, I just couldn't stand it. And I just said, how did you stand it? How did you take it? How did you endure this? And he looked at me like Ruth will look at me like, and he said, I was getting ready to tell you, if you just hush, you know, I, I'm going to tell you this. And, and he said, he said, Nick, uh, I had two disciplines in my life. I had two practices in my life. Uh, I, I, I learned it from my father who learned it. Listen, he learned it from his father who learned it. From, I learned it from my father who learned it from my grandfather who learned it from my great-grandfather. And he said, every morning as the sun came up in the east, I would stand at attention. They put him in a prison as one of the, he was the only believer in 1,500 hardened criminals. And, and I'm, I'm challenging him. I'm begging him. Tell me, how did you stay faithful to Jesus and live the resurrection in that hole that looks more like hell than it ever would look like heaven? And he said, I learned from my great-great-grandfather down to my father. And every morning I would stand at attention by my bed. And as the sun came up in the east, I would raise my hands in praise. And I had what he called a heart he went in that prison with about 20 songs that he'd sing to Jesus, and they beat all of them by two, but two out of him. And he said, I had two heart songs, he called them, chiseled on the sole of my heart that I still would sing to God. And can you imagine, he's in this cage. It's not this wide. It's not this deep. He can get out of his little, you know, wire bed and walk to the door of his cell or back up to the toilet and the sink, and there's just cages on cages around him. The lights are never off. Someone's always being brutalized. Someone's always dying. They're always shouting. They're always cussing. And they're always just being so hate-filled. This is the center of hell in his world on earth. And there the man of God stands singing his heart out to Jesus. And they're laughing at him. And they're jeering at him. And they're throwing old food at him. And if they're close enough, they're throwing human waste at him as he stands there with his hands lifted up to heaven. And he said, Nick, whenever I could find a tiny piece of paper, a piece of charcoal, a pencil, whatever, I would rush back to my cell and I would write down whatever that piece of paper would hold. Any Bible story, if it was big enough, any scriptures that I had hidden in my heart and my head, any, any scriptural songs, I would write that and I had a concrete pillar in each corner of the cell, and it's always oozing water and sewage and 
freezing in the wintertime, and I would take that scriptural offering from, to, that I gave to God, only thing I had to give, and I'd stick it on that concrete post, and it would stay there till the guards saw it. When they read the content, they'd tear it up and come in the cell and beat me for it. And he said, nothing they could do to me would shut me up until the day they went back a thousand miles to my house. My wife only has two set of clothing to her name, and they, they stole a set of clothing, even the purse, hose, shoes, jacket, everything that I would recognize, and they took a common criminal lady and dressed her in his wife's clothes, cut her head, hair, and then they drug her in that man's prison far enough where he couldn't see her face, turned away from him, close enough that he could recognize the outer garments, the shoes, the purse, and they took her down to an interrogation room, and they abused her, and folks, it's as bad as it can get, ladies, and they did that for 72 hours, uh, uh, men cycling in and out, and he's listening for three days and three nights as she's being bruised, abused as she's screaming until he hears her getting weaker and weaker and weaker and she dies on the third night and they wrap her in a blanket drag folks this is in my lifetime this is in my lifetime i'm sitting across this is not a rumor i can see it in his eyes i can see it on his face i can see the scars on his hands and see the way he limps and the way he has to sit sideways. And they drug her wrapped in a blanket by his cell with a purse, hand hanging out, a foot hanging out. A guard looks at him, a killer looks at him and says, she's dead, you're next. And he sits on the bed and everybody, I don't know of anybody that doesn't do this in persecution. He tells God, I can't take this any longer. Like Jesus even Jesus could not carry his cross all the way to Calvary. He had to get somebody to help him finish the journey. Huh. What an honor that would have been to help him finish that journey to Calvary, maybe. If there is a resurrection, without a resurrection, that would have been a nightmare. And Dimitri believes his wife is dead. He sits on that bed and he says to God, I'm done. I, I can't do this anymore. And he calls his guards to him. He says, I'm ready to confess. I'm ready to sign anything you want me to sign. Uh, they said, now, you know, it'll take us all night to get the lawyer up and draw the papers up legally. And we'll bring them in the morning. You'll sign them. Then you'll be free to go. He said, I don't care. Write whatever you want to. My wife's dead. I've got to go find where my boys are. All he had to sign for 17 years was two things, that he was not a Christian, he did not believe in Jesus the Christ, and that he was paid by Western uh, governments to overthrow the Soviet Union. He signs that, and he's free to go. He never had to experience any of that. He says, write what you want to. I'm going to sign it. Uh, I've got to get out of here. And he sits on his bed in utter despair and says to God, I can't live this crucified life anymore. I no longer live. And his wife, his sons, and his older brother, a thousand miles away, sense the unusual amount of despair the man of God had in that cell that night 
and they come together where I'm sitting, and they get on their knees on this floor where I am sitting, and they begin to cry out to God for a husband, for a father, and a brother, and the Holy Spirit of the living God that is available to everyone who is a believer in this room tonight allowed Dimitri in his cell to hear the voices of his brother, of his sons, and his wife as they cried out to God on his behalf. And the next morning they came for him with that confession. And his back is straight, his shoulders are square, there's power in his eyes, and he says to them, I'm not signing anything. And they ask him, what happened to you? We had you destroyed. We had you beaten. We had your faith annihilated. And he said, Almighty God allowed me to hear the voices of my wife and my children and my brother as they prayed for me. Not only do I know my wife is alive, I, I, I know that she still is faithfully following Jesus. And he said to his guards, get out of my cell. Now, there's a man of God when you throw the, your, your, your torturers out of your jail cell. And, and, and uh, he said, Nick, I thought every holiday, every Christmas, every birthday had come. Two weeks after that, I'm on the exercise yard where only I walk. And I look down, and on the ground is an entire piece of paper, blank on both sides with a pencil laying on top. And I, the only explanation for that, he said, was that God had sent his angel to put that there just for him. He said, I rushed back to my cell, and for over four hours, I wrote as tiny as I could every verse of the Bible, every story from the Bible, every scriptural song that I would sing, and I filled up both sides of that just as tiny as I could. And it was, uh, he said, I knew, I knew it was not wise to do it, but how can I not give Jesus the greatest scriptural offering I could ever give him, so I put it on that concrete post as high as I could reach, and he said, less than 10 minutes, the guards saw it, and they read what's on it, and they ripped it into shreds, and they came into that cell, and they started to beat your brother in a way they'd never touched him before, and they said, everything we've tried has not worked. Now we're done with you. You know what's outside of those bars. That's the execution yard. In 15 minutes, you're going to be tied to one of those posts. And in 20 minutes, we're going to shoot you dead. And they began to drag him out of his cell and down the corridor. And they got almost to the door to the execution yard. And before they could go out that door, 1,000, imagine it, folks, get ready, 1,000 500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their bed. 3,000 arms were raised for the first time in their lives in praise to Almighty God. And, and 1,500 hardened criminals began to sing the heart song they'd heard that man sing in prison all those years. This is worth a hallelujah. Don't you sit there dead. All right? And... and the guards let go of him, and they were terrified. And they said, who are you? And he said, I am the son of a living God, and his name is Jesus Christ the Lord. I've got a seminary doctorate. What am I going to teach that man about the kingdom of God? I am not worthy to unlatch Dimitri's sandals, let alone Jesus's. I've got to work my way back to Jesus. Folks, why? Why? Why for some 
Uh, I've watched it hundreds of times. The, the, the persecutors in the Soviet Union, in China, in India, among Hindus and Buddhists and communists and, and atheists and, 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 and animistic people and, and certainly in Islam. They, they, they go to the church in the Soviet Union and they say, shut up. And that church will never open its doors again. And they'll never allow anybody in but members. They'll become like little mice sitting in a corner, quietly uh, speaking the gospel to each other and quietly singing. And they will never, 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 ever export the gospel outside the doors of that secret meeting ever again. And yet across the road, they go to a, a church that is the same background as that one and says, you are not allowed to let anybody under 26 years of age ever in this church again. Folks, when Khrushchev passed that law, pastors by the tens of thousands went to their death in prison because they would not kick out their own members. And pastors by the tens of thousands stood in the pulpit the next Sunday and looked at the church and said, it is the law of the land that if you are 26 years of age and younger, you can no longer come to church. And they kicked their own children out of church. Why? why? Why do the majority of those claim as their verse, Revelation 2.10, faithful unto death, and the spineless side of the equation are faithful until told to do otherwise? Why? What's the difference? Why, why, for some, they perpetually live in the crucifixion and never, ever experience the stone being rolled away and having Jesus resurrected in their hearts? Why, when, when, when some are threatened with death and, and they're knocked down, they get up, and when they're knocked down, they get up, and others, when they're told, I might knock you down, uh, uh, they never bother themselves with Jesus or the church ever again. Why? Why are, why are some living the resurrection and, and others surrendering without a spiritual uh, shot uh, fired? Uh, I, I, I'm going to be Ruth tonight, not Nick, because I'm going to do what I hate doing. I'm going to give you a list. I hate list. I had a counselor one time say to me, well, why don't you make a list at the end of the day and write down all the things that you had accomplished and then mark them out? I said, you need a counselor. <laughs> she did. My wife loves lists. I hate them. But I've got a list for you. And it's, it's probably the most important list, maybe, that anybody's ever given to you. Because what we now have in our hands and in our heart for you in just a few minutes' time is what does the DNA of the resurrection look like? What I'm going to be able to do as this big window has been opened for you tonight is to hold up a big mirror and say to you, when we find people, no matter the situation, when we find your brothers and sisters today, 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 being faithful in, unto death, here's what they practice. Here's the DNA of their faith. 
And you can look in this mirror, and, and you're going to be able to listen to what Nick is saying, and you're going to be able to determine, okay, I'm doing this pretty good. I might not be doing this one at all. I need to start doing this. You, you, you can be able to look not just in a mirror, but you can look through the window, and you can begin to picture your wife, your husbands, maybe even whom you hope to be your future spouse and have them held in your mind, certainly your children in the mind. Are you modeling the DNA of the resurrection, or, or are you uh, of the sort that has a certain type of Christianity that when the pressure came and they said, if you stay with, jo with Jesus, no job in the factory. If you stay with Jesus, no school teaching. If you stay with Jesus, your kids will never have a formal education. If you stay with Jesus, well, uh, you are going to die, so go ahead and be faithful because we're going to kill you. What is your answer going to be? And you can answer this, and you can live this, as certainly in a country like ours, as much as you can in a country like his. So what does it mean to live out the resurrection? First of all, it means you ought to hear how these people know Jesus. Now, you can build a big church. You can get a lot of amens. You can get them in political corners, and you can get it in conservative Christian environments. All you've got to do is say uh, the truth, but just say uh, the truth, which is bad things about Muhammad. You can tear down Islam, and, and you can talk about the dangers of letting those people be around us, God's people, and, and if you want to tear down Islam, and you want to criticize Muhammad, you know what? You're going to build a good following, a big following, and maybe even a rich following very, very quickly. But Jesus said to us, now here's how you do Christianity. You tear down Buddhism. You tear down Hinduism. You tear down Islam. You tear down communism. And you will be known for what you're against. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, no, you will be known if you lift Jesus up. That is our job. As we lift Jesus up, all people will be drawn to him. When we listen to believers in persecution from the earliest memories until today, we're listening to the comprehensive life that they've led when they talk about Jesus. Listen, I've been married for 41 years. And I talk about Ruth and I look at Ruth in a way that's just reserved for Ruth. And when they begin to talk about Jesus and you can hear the tone of their voice and you can watch their eyes and you can look at their body language and for 15 and 30 and 45 minutes or more, they will tell you who Jesus is in their life. When they are living the resurrection, it's not that they have the right doctrine of the Lord's Supper. It's not that they know how to use the right water in the right way at baptism. It's not that they've got the right dispensation about the second coming of Christ. It's not the Jesus they talk about. It's the Jesus they know. Do you know Christ intimately tonight? Secondly, when you find people living what I call the DNA of the resurrection, you all listen to these people pray. They, they smuggled me into this Chinese leader's tiny, tiny apartment. One tiny table, one porcelain plate, big old spoon, a knife. 
he has a tiny cot and he has a nail in the wall to hold any extra clothes he has and, and he has this wire frame bed and a few cans on a shelf. And, and they, they, they took me, snuck me in there at, at midnight. And, 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 and they said, now you be out here by 4.30 in the morning any later than this. And, and there's going to be trouble. And I sat with this man who'd been in prison for 31 years. And that prison is less than four blocks away. And he just pours out his heart to me of how they forced his wife to divorce him. How they convinced his sons to walk away from the faith and all of the things they took from him. And, and he gets so broken and he walks over to his desk and he opens up that big Bible. I was to discover that he prays and fasts four days out of every seven. And he just cries out to Jesus reads from the Psalms and he cries out to Jesus and he'll do that for 20, 30 minutes and then he'll look around and he looks at me and he says, where did you come from? Man, they have scrambled his brains and they have beaten him. He won't be right totally until he gets to heaven. But I'm sitting with what has remained and he'll come back over and tell me his story and get so broken over the atrocities that they had done to him and he'll go back open and open that word and start talking to Jesus and pouring out his life to Jesus. And, and he'll look at me and he'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot that you were here. And this old man, tortured, abused, uh, just emotionally harmed so much that heaven is going to have to put him back together. Set, I walked out of there and he's sitting at that little flimsy table crying out to Jesus he doesn't even know I'm walking out the door and a few months later this brother dies folks I'm sitting in that room I knew he was going to die soon because the way that he talked to Jesus there was more of him in heaven that was sitting in that chair the DNA of the resurrection these people talked to Jesus the way that I talk to Ruth, the words and the language that I reserve for only her is a tiny, tiny shadow of how they talk to Jesus and they pour their lives out into him. I have ended up where I'm not supposed to be. I've ended up in airports in places I never intended to go and get off of that airplane and walk down the stairs of that airplane at 7 o'clock in the morning and it looks like five hardcore Muslim men are standing there and I greet a European guy that had sent for me and I ask him, who are your Muslim friends? And he looks at me in fear. He says, you don't know who they are? I said, I didn't know who you were 30 seconds ago. He said, well, Nick, if you don't know them, I don't know them. I have a security problem. And, and he wrote on a scrap piece of paper his cell phone number and gave it to me. He said, here's my cell phone number. I'm going to leave you with these guys. And if it works out okay, you call me. I'll come back and get you. There's somebody I send a Christmas card to. <laughs> and, and he left me with, uh, I mean, it looked like five of the meanest Muslim men on earth. And so I'm not... My daddy didn't raise any boys that dumb. One of my brothers is fairly close, but not, not really. And, and, and so I'm going over there to that little tiny airport terminal thing, 
And I don't care where the next plane goes. I'm going to get on it because this is dangerous. This is really dangerous. And, and so I'm going over there. They're trying to take my bag away from me, my little tiny roller bag. And I'm jerking that out of their hands, and they're grabbing me by the shirt, trying to pull me around, and I'm smacking their hands off my shoulder. And, and, and I'm, my heart is just thumping in my chest. And, and, and almost at the time I walk in the door of that small airport terminal, one of them whispers in broken English, we love Jesus. I said, I knew that. I just needed to go to the bathroom. No redneck needs to be embarrassed. We just don't do that. And my wife wasn't there. The kids weren't there. So I could just lie. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and they took me to an unfinished apartment. And they said to, to me, we've been meeting up here for months and months from midnight to 3 o'clock in the morning. And two weeks ago, we started praying out to God and crying out to God. We don't know how to do this, Lord. We know how to be Muslims in a Muslim country. We know even how to be communists. In a Muslim country. We have no clue how to follow Jesus in a Muslim country. And Lord, you're going to have to send us someone who, who can teach us what it's like to live in this kind of persecution. Who can teach us what other believers have learned. Lord, we can't do this anymore. And we were praying at 1.30 this morning. And the Holy Spirit said, go to the airport. Meet the first plane that lands at the airport. Meet the first person that gets off of that airplane. I have sent him to you to answer your prayers. And I stayed with them for a week. And I shared with them a lot of what I've shared with you this week. Just the same things. This is how you do this in persecution. Not because I learned it from my home country, but because we had been all these other places. I could tell you, we don't have time, I will not do it. I could tell you about 26 stories just like that where Ruth and I have been answers to prayers just like what I've just explained to you. But that's not the issue, is it? I love being answers to prayers like that, but I want to pray like that. I want to pray and go to the airport. I want to pray during my quiet time. I don't have quiet time. I have a loud time, okay? I want to pray, and I want to set the table for the visitors that God is coming. I, I, I want to be, I, I want prayer to be so natural and so normal that I am talking, I know, to the God of the universe. But when people live the resurrected life in the worst places on the planet, you should listen to them pray. And you've got to understand that they have done two more things. They have committed great portions of the Bible to memory, and they've committed great portions of their indigenous music, that's an important word for you to hang on to, to memory. They took, uh, they, they, they weren't very wise, these three charismatic pastors. And they took over, they took hundreds, hundreds of young people into Moscow during some of its strongest times of communism. And these young people were 18 to 30 years of age. They were all single, never had been married, and none of them. None of them have ever touched a Bible. None. Never touched a Bible. None of them have ever seen a hymn book. They've never had a piece of sacred music. No, no, no way to, to keep it electronically, of course, back in those days. And those three charismatic uh, uh, pastors uh, didn't have a program. 
They just had a thousand house churches that were so discouraged because, as I told a group today, they had done their security so well, not only could the persecutors not find them, the Christians couldn't find them. So though there were a thousand house churches in, 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 a, in an area the size of Tennessee perhaps, uh, they didn't know of each other. They, they were discouraged. And so these charismatic pastors brought these young people into Moscow. They didn't really have a, a program. They just said to them, let's see how much of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John you could do by memory. You can recreate by memory. They didn't have a plan to do that. They just thought it up on the moment. Let's see how many songs, hymns, and choruses you can recreate by memory. And at the end of the week, all these small groups came together. You, you, you can't begin to imagine how much you all know. But you're, you, you've been so scared by us literate preachers that, that if you're telling God's story and you get a jot or a tittle or a conjunction or an adjective or an adverb, as if I know what those mean, uh, out of place, that we're going to jump down your throat. So you're, you're just so scared that Christians are going to persecute you for mishandling the Word of God. You just don't use it. At the end of the week, they brought their corporate memory together. Young people, non-married, never touched the Bible, never touched a hymn book, and they recreated Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with six mistakes. And they recreated 1,200 songs, hymns, and choruses in their own language, written by their own people for their own faith system in their persecution, they recreated 1,200 songs, hymns, and courses by memory. You know what we call that? We call that normal Christianity. We're saying, listen, listen, I'm not messing with you tonight. I, I, and I, I, when I look in the mirror, I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing me. Normal Christianity has committed around the world, in persecution, 70% of the Bible stories to memory. You don't have to smuggle Bibles into Saudi Arabia if you are the container for the Bible. You don't have to worry about them catching you in customs in North Korea if you are the place where the Bible is hidden in your hearts and in your heads. Folks, you're breaking my heart in this country. Ruth and I have returned after being gone for 30-some years, and we're finding our churches splitting and fighting and dividing over whose music we, we sing, whose worship we do. And, uh, and I'm so thankful for the experience we're having here this week. I haven't got a, a whiff of dissension like that, but my heart music is not my grandma's heart music, but I have no right to take her heart music away from her. My heart music is not my children's heart music. Theirs sound like a cat in a blender. <laughs> People say there's no such thing as Christian music. There's only Christian what, content or Christian words. No, no, no. That's not Christian music. Not, not sound like that, surely. Parents, if you're just getting married, you're just starting to raise your kids. Kids, put your fingers in your ear. I'm going to give you a secret. If your kids, even with their Christian music, is stuff that you don't like, what I'm asking, what I'm giving you a hint, learn that music. And when their friends come over, sing your kids' music in front of their friends, and they will never use it again. <laughs> I take all, I take cash, credit cards, and, 
you know, and checks, okay? That, that'll save you a lot of grief, I promise you. you you're going to DEFCON 4, but you sing your kids' music to them, and if that doesn't stop it, just sing it when, when their friends get there. I've saved you a lot of grief. And folks, if I listen to them, and Ruth and I ask them, what keeps you strong? What helps you to grow? We can even reduce it to this. Watch your verse. Watch your song. And if they say, oh, uh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, or blessed be the name of the Lord, or, or uh, hundreds of songs that are our heart songs, if they give us Western music back to us, we know one of two things. Either they haven't gone through enough suffering for their witness in order to write their own music, or they went into persecution using our songs and they failed Jesus because they didn't have their own heart music. One of the worst things we can do on the mission field is translate our music and give it to them as their music. It doesn't work. You wouldn't take it if somebody came from another country and did it to you. Don't you do it to somebody else. They know Jesus. They know how to pray. They know large portions of the scripture. They know large portions of their heart music. Uh, and next, they know that they are prayed for, that they are not forgotten. All over Eastern Europe, they said to us over and over again, hundreds of times, we can never repay the Western church the debt of prayer that we owe them as they prayed for us in our persecution. When, when Ruth and I show up in the darkest corners on the earth, we have to go usually through five or six filters just to get to one interview. You just have to let the Holy Spirit set that up. Humans can't do that. I mean, that's, I mean, if we've done almost 700 interviews and you need six, seven, eight filters that have to trust you to get you down to the darkest places, wow, that's, that's, that's a job only the Holy Spirit can do. No one else can do that. And when we show up, I wish Ruth would come and tell this story. And you could see her face. They say, who are you? Where did you come from? Uh, why? What are you doing here and, and Ruth and I say to them, we, we've heard about your faith. We've heard about your suffering. Uh, we have special days in November where, we, where, where all of Christendom, we try to get them to pray for the church in persecution. And when they, when they realize that they are prayed for, they are not forgotten, the, they cannot tell us their story they're going to spend the first 15 minutes plus weeping with joy knowing that your prayers carried them when they couldn't carry themselves well done well done you always want to pray for your brothers and sisters in persecution who are suffering to the same extent that you want them to pray for you when it becomes your turn might not be persecution from your government. It might not be your parents putting you under house arrest. It might not be your grandparents stealing your children because you're not fit uh, to be a parent of a Muslim children any longer. It, it might be a cancer. It might be you lost your job. 
It might be that things out of your control and the whole world comes crashing in and the person that you thought would love you uh, uh, until death do you part uh, loves you until they decided not to. Some of the worst persecution, it doesn't have to be because of wickedness of governments and persecution from Muslim families. Uh, we, we all come to this point where we just feel like I am crucified with Christ. And I don't live. And without brothers and sisters, Ruth and I know this, we would never have survived Somalia without the 1,200 people we had on a list that every day promised to pray for Ruth and I and our kids and we could not have done what we did if we had been uncovered without prayer. Do you hear what I'm saying? If they, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are to live a resurrected life thousands of miles away from you, you have to carry them when they can no longer carry themselves. And wouldn't it be cool that it's their voice, they, it's your voice they hear in prison when their backs are against the wall and they can't take it anymore. The Chinese asked me, Nick, has Jesus made it to other countries or has he made it just to China? And I chose to tell them about believers in America. No, no, at that time, I chose to tell them about believers in Saudi Arabia and Somalia. And they sat stunned on the ground. Didn't say a word, didn't blink. I thought, well, this was a big hit. And I stumbled off into the cot that I slept in for two weeks that I shared with four Chinese gentlemen. You think that's a blessing? Try it sometime. It was a bed, a twin and a half. Guys, you don't know what that is. That's small. You wake up every morning in the middle of the night or something, and one of them's got their arm across your chest, and, and the other one's breathing into your ear. It's not, it's not fun. It's not fun. There's no redneck on earth that enjoys that. If you do, get counseling. If you do, get away, <laughs> you know. And, 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 and I, I, I get up in the, in the morning, and, and I hear all this screaming and, and all this noise, and I thought, oh, my, there's too many of us here. We've been here too long. The security police have found them. They're going to get busted, go to jail. I'm going to be sent to the airport. And I go out there, no police, no problem, but there's 170 Chinese house church believers sitting, laying on the ground, pulling their clothes, pulling their hair, and I'm looking at this mass hysteria, I think, and Jonathan, the interpreter, comes over and says uh, to me, don't worry, don't worry, Nick, don't worry, there's no problem, just listen to what they say. I said, Jonathan, I don't speak any Han Chinese. He said, just be quiet for a change. How did he know that? And uh, who's he been talking to? And, and I walk among them, and I hear them crying out to God with tears streaming down their face. And I hear them saying, Somalia, 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 Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia. And Jonathan's weeping. And he said they were so moved by the stories of believers who are truly persecuted when the Chinese here only had to go to jail for three years. You want to hear yourself ever say that? 
We only had to go to jail three years. But they were so moved by the stories of those who were really persecuted, they vowed unto God that they would get up every morning an hour earlier and pray for their brothers and sisters who are suffering for the cause of Christ until Jesus is known throughout their countries. I wish you could go with Ruth and I when we went back and told the Saudi Arabian believers and the Somali believers and, and asked them, has anything unusual be happening? And they said, oh, wow, there's been more fruit. There's been more witness. There's been more openness. We don't know what's going on. We say, we know what's going on. You've got 10 million house church people calling your names, your country, your people out to God every morning for an hour. And they just weep and weep and said, oh, God, just let us live long enough to get back to China, to get to China, to find the house church people, and to thank them for praying for us when we didn't have a prayer remembering us when everybody else has forgotten us they know that they're they they know that they are prayed for they're not forgotten and this is a huge one that we could stay here for a couple of days they know that the local body of Christ takes care of the suffering part of their church what am I talking about took a Baptist pastor the number one man in that country. And they put him in a KGB torture facility and they took him apart. And he was not to live. They took him in there for nine months. He had one guard that was so vicious that guard would bring him a piece of toast every day with the guard's waist on it for breakfast. I'm sorry, children. Life's like that. You're hearing what I'm saying. You're not hearing what I have to edit out of the story. And they took his wife and his four kids, gave them one hour to go home and pack a little paper bag and get on a train, and they sent them 18 hours out in nowhere. And on that train, moms, your kids are going, Mama, what's happening? Mama, where's Daddy? Mama, is daddy going to live? Mama, where we're going? Mama, I'm scared. Mama, what's happening? And mom has to be mom and dad for years and years and years and say, kids, we have taught you about trusting God from the day you were born. And this is the night you've got to put it in practice and a man comes up to them on that train. Scares them. Are you pastor's wife? Are you pastor's so-and-so kids? Yes. You don't know me. You don't know my church. But last night the Holy Spirit came to us while we were praying and told us what's happening to your husband and what's happening to you. And the Holy Spirit said, take an offering. Get on this train and you go and, and you give money. Give the offering to pastor's family. And he says, this is why I'm here. Here's enough money for the next six months. And when this runs out, the body of Christ will be back to take care of you. You know what we call that? We call that church. We call that church. Wish I had time. I have five or six stories that are at least that powerful, if not worse. They will appreciate anything we from the West can do for them. But don't you dare. Listen, I, I'm saying to you in the name of Jesus and God Almighty, don't you dare use your money and your resources in such a way that you replace the local body of Christ taking care of their sons and daughters in the midst of persecution, don't you cheat them out of them knowing that they can trust their church and they can trust God to take care of them.
Are you to help? Yes. Are you to become their church? No, you are not. No, no, we're not. You go to prison after prison after prison. And you go up and you, you see that your pastor, your elder in prison, that, that evangelist, that church planner, and, 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 and you ask him, pastor, leader, worker, how are you doing? They will never reply to you. They will say, how's my wife? How's my children? What's happening in my home? You, you know what their visitors will say? Pastor, leader, elder, deacon, evangelist, church planner, your job is to be obedient to God in prison. Our job is take care of your family. You do your job, let us do ours. You watch what that does to him. Wow, you talk about spine stiffening and, and straightening. When, when you find the body of Christ living the resurrection in the worst places on the planet, they know that the body of Jesus takes care of its children and no one, they don't have to depend upon anything, anyone but themselves and they know that they can trust the body of Christ and trust God to give them every resource they need for the battle. That's what we call church. When they live the resurrection they know that their suffering is for Jesus. Now, folks, I, I talked about that a long time last night, so will you just let me pass by that? They know that their suffering is for Jesus. We said last night that the number one cause of persecution is people coming to Christ. Do we always do the wisest things? No, we don't. Especially when we come from the West and we go to places like Syria and Afghanistan and Somalia where were we supposed to learn how to incarnate Christ in those horrible places? And sometimes we make mistakes. And sometimes we might even precipitate our own persecution. And when I do that, what do you say to me when you visit me in that jail or under that house arrest or broken in the hospital? Do you look at me and say, hey, you dumb redneck? Don't you know better than this? No, you would just, if you do that, you steal the Holy Spirit right out of my soul. You know what? The only witness that God cannot use is no witness. And under God's great dream and plan for us, we should be able to give any half-baked witness that we want to to our neighbors across the, to, across the street or across the ocean and just let God multiply that. But evil is working so hard that, that it will take less than wise offerings and twist it and turn all your good intentions uh, to bad results. And when that happens, you look your brothers and sisters in the heart and you say to them, I am so proud of you. Because what is happening to you and the reason why you're in prison, the reason why you're beaten, the reason why you're suffering, the reason why you lost your job is because you love Jesus and you are trying your best to make him known in a bad situation. We are proud of you. You don't steal Jesus from your brothers and sisters. When you allow them to know that their suffering is for Jesus' sake, back straighten, shoulders square, and the Holy Spirit is evident in their lives in ways that you cannot believe. Don't you steal Jesus from one another. Wow. These next two are almost un-American. 
They have claimed their freedom and they've lost their fear. They go to the Chinese again. If you don't stop the house church from meeting on your farm, we're going to take your farm away from you and throw you in the streets. They say, you want my farm? You need to talk to Jesus. I gave it to him. They say, well, we can't get to your Jesus, but we can get to you. If you don't stop this nonsense, your wife and kids, we're going to take your house. We're going to take your farm. We're going to throw you in the streets. You know what they say? Then I am free to trust Jesus for my daily bread. If you don't stop this, we're going to beat you. Then we are free to trust Jesus for healing. If you don't stop this, I'm going to put you in prison. Then I am free to share Christ with the captives and set them free. If you don't stop this nonsense, we're going to kill you. Then we are free to go to heaven to be with Jesus. Folks, you can never, never successfully persecute people who knows that their freedom comes from the throne of God. If you think it comes from government, you're cheating God. All that governments can do is to decide whether or not to agree with God or not. Freedom, I, listen, I wish I had more time. I, I wish we had days together. I get a, invited a lot of places once. Okay? Okay? You hear? You hear? There's another two or three days we can do together, all right? Uh, uh, I get invited a lot of places once, but I am as free to share Jesus in Saudi Arabia as I am South Carolina. I am as free to share Jesus in North Korea as I am in Kentucky. Men, especially us, we've got it wrong. We think the ability, the right, the, the, the opportunity to share Christ is based upon what government we are in. No, Jesus has commanded us to go to Jerusalem, commanded us to go to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and we are to share the gospel everywhere we go, and Jesus is not going to command you to do something that you can't do. It is not about political freedom. It's about obedience, and it's time. It's time to stop whining and start witnessing. And I'm not being ugly. I want you to have the joy of seeing life change. And I'm not talking about witnessing as a drive-by shooting. I'm talking about breaking bread with your enemies and praying for those who curse you and despitefully use you. For Jesus said, such is the kingdom of God. They've claimed their freedom. They lost their fear. The number one weapon of Satan is fear. And I can't convince you of this, so I'm not going to try. But the fear of persecution is almost always worse than the persecution itself. The Chinese tell us over and over again, once we can get them through their first persecution, their faith soars because their fear is greater than the experience. Two believers from Islam, Islamic background said to me, Nick, Fear is such an issue that God has put in the Bible 366 verses on not being afraid or verses concerning fear. So you have a verse for every day of a year and an extra verse when you have a, little ba uh, a real bad day. Fear gives Satan a geographical presence that he would not have if you are not afraid. Did you listen to that? When you are afraid, you invite Satan into your church. You invite him into your home. You invite him into 
your quiet place. They have claimed their freedom. They have lost their fear. And finally, I go to country. Ruth and I go to country after country after country after country. And I look at people and I get so astounded at what we're finding. And I cry out to them, where did you learn to live like this? Where did you learn to die like this? That's, that's a pretty good question. And they say, Nick, I remember. I remember the day that my daddy came and got me. He picked up my little sister and my brother. We were in Russia, and, and, and he put us in his lap, and we're in the kitchen, the only room heated in the house, and my mother's crying, and, and Daddy says, Kids, tomorrow one of my friends in, in the police force told me I'm going to be arrested and taken to prison. He said, Kids, all over this territory, Christians are being hung to death if they refuse to deny Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And my daddy said, kids, and he looked at his wife, looked at my mama, and said, kids, if while I'm in prison, I hear that my wife and kids are killed, rather than to deny Christ, I will be the most proud man in that prison. What do I do with that? That is not the type of Christianity I was taught in Kentucky. I was taught that God was supposed to take care of me. I was taught that I'm supposed to have a car. If God loves me, I get this and I get this and I get this. That, that following Jesus means that I get to pray a, little, pray a little prayer and then I can walk away from him for the next 60 years. When I die, he's got to take me to heaven. No, no, no. Hung to death? Who believes that? Everybody in the New Testament that were followers of Jesus. Where did you learn to live like this and die like this? I remember when my daddy took me and my sister in his arms. Kids, this is in the Ukraine. I'm standing on holy ground. He said, kids, they are systematically starving followers of Jesus all over this area, the breadbasket of the Ukraine. And if Jesus calls us to starve for him, as your father, I'm saying to you, we will do so with joy. What? When we find our brothers and sisters living the resurrection, they have a genealogy of faith. I say, I scream, I, I cry out, where did you learn to live like this and die like this. And he said, I learned it from my great-grandmother, and I learned it from my grandmother, and I learned it from my mother, and now it's my turn. I learned it from my great-grandfather and my grandfather and my father, and now it's my turn. They have a genealogy of faith. Their biological family has become their spiritual family, and that teaches them how to live and how to die. But in most of the world, in Islam especially, it's your parents that will steal your children away if you're a Christian. It's your grandparents, I've watched it, will take you to the insane asylum and chain you next to a manic depressed person. It's your family that will beat you and disown you and disinherit you. Why do we beg you? to join us and go to the nations is because we've got to have you standing in the gap. And you've got to do two things, and you've got to do them right now.
First of all, you've got to orally, whatever it is, you've got to get that Bible open. And from Genesis to Revelation, you've got to tell those stories that teach them from the Word of God. This is how believers, uh, followers of Jesus live, and this is how they die. And then you put that book in the right place. And you tell them as our musicians, would you all come up? I'm done. Come on up, please, and get ready to take us to the throne, if you would. You've got to do two things in a hurry. You've got to, you've got to build them a biological, you've got to build them a biblical genealogy of faith that those Bible stories model for them how to live and die and then this is where you come in. You've got to stand in that gap. And you say to them, if you need Bible with skin on it, if you need flesh and blood to demonstrate for you what it means to live for Jesus and die for Jesus, you watch my life. You watch my wife. You watch me and my wife and our kids. And what we're going to do, we're going to model for you what it means to live for Jesus and what it means to die for Jesus until you can build. We'll help you do that. We'll help you evangelize that. We'll help you do that. Help you until you have your own biological, spiritual genealogy of faith. We're going to stand in the gap and when you want to know and you have to know how to live and die as a follower of Jesus, watch our lives and we're going to demonstrate, model, live that out in front of you. This is how a follower of Jesus lives and this is how they die. Mickey Mouse died a long time ago. This is not Mickey Mouse Christianity. Came out of Somalia. And all I could pray, all I could think, I have been crucified with Christ. And I, I, I don't live anymore. I no longer am alive. And then I met Dimitri. And I met Suleiman. And I met Laban and Aisha. And I met Dimitri. And I met their cousins and their brothers and their spiritual fathers and grandfathers. And now again I can pray. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Why? But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and who modeled for me how to live and how to die as a child of God church there is no such thing as a cheap discounted Jesus he's Lord or he's nothing what we want to do is sing your heart song, maybe one of your heart songs. You can respond by 
standing, singing. You can respond by coming and kneeling. You do what God commands. A lot of this stuff is hard to digest, and you can't do that in the minutes that it was shared. So maybe you just need to think about it. Folks, this is what the resurrection looks like lived out. How are you doing? What are you feeding your kids? What are you modeling for your spouse? What are you looking for in a future husband or wife? 